good to see you and, uh, and be with you, whether I'm with you uh, here in the room or with you in your, uh, in your sofa. And then afterwards, you guys can all text each other as to who had the comfiest seat. I think that's how that, uh, that works. Um, I want to ask a few questions over the next few weeks about, about how we're formed and shaped and, and the decisions that we make in how we lead and navigate our lives. And, and I feel like I feel like sometimes sermons work like educational processes where, you know, sometimes you have to go, hey, let's, let's learn something new together. And other times you have to go, hey, let's learn something that we've already learned and maybe forgotten. Uh, and so we kind of circle back round. And so when we do some of that circling, sometimes I, help, I find it helps to sort of frame it, maybe even in language that we've used before. Uh, and and I want to, so I want to talk for the kind of beginning of 2022, our first series on this question of habits. And we have talked about habits in my time with Westside uh, before, but as you know with habits, you know, bad ones have a tendency to sneak back and good ones have a tendency to sort of not make it past the second week of January. And maybe that's just my experience of yet another year of being what is known as a gym sponsor which is significantly different than being a gym user, right? So there's two types of us out there, aren't there? There's people who just give money to the gym because we love the gym and we want to ensure it continues. And then there's people who give money to the gym because they like going to the gym and actually you know, doing something while they're there. <laughs> so I wanna talk about habits. We have talked about habits before in my time at Westside, as I said, but I wanna look at them now with mid-pandemic eyes. And that's not me saying that we're in the middle of the pandemic. I hope that we're close to the end of the pandemic. So please don't overread my use of mid-pandemic there. Last week uh, in our teaching, I, I used this quote from Tish Harrison Warren from this book of hers called Liturgy of the Ordinary, a fantastic little book that I would recommend anybody put into this sort of reading uh, patterns. But I want to circle back to the quote from last week to sort of launch us into this week. Um, Tish says this, some Christians seem to think that we push back against the age primarily by believing correctly or by getting the right ideas in our heads or having a biblical worldview. While doctrinal orthodoxy is crucial in the Christian life, for the most part, we are not primarily motivated by our conscious thoughts. Most of what we do is pre-cognitive. We do not usually think about our beliefs or worldview as we brush our teeth, go grocery shopping, and drive our cars. Most of what shapes our life and culture works below the mind, in our gut, and in our loves. Most of what we do is precognitive. Now, Tishy's book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, liturgy is a very Christian kind of churchy word, but the word quite literally means the work of the people. It, it, it quite literally, it, it's what we do with our lives. It's what we do regularly. It's the stuff we do and we do it together sometimes. And I think that when she's talking about how our lives work, I think Warren's quite accurate here that, that there is stuff that we believe and there is stuff that we do. And the two things don't always line up, right? But then added to that, there's this sort of idea, particularly for those of us that live within a Western context, that there's a trajectory where the stuff that we think, and if we get our thinking right, then that will come out in the way that we behave. 
If I think right, then I'll behave in particular ways. And we absolutely adhere to this so often within Western thinking. Um, But it is the second or third week of January now, and how well has that thinking about going to the gym every day actually turned out into real-life practice for 2022? In fact, I wonder if our ideas about how we think and that affect our behavior, I wonder how they line up with what St. Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Something that's been said for quite some time, uh, but I wonder if you can relate to it. Paul says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, this passage is fascinating for a whole host of reasons. One reason this passage is fascinating is you didn't realize until now it was possible to say the word do so many times in a paragraph and it still be grammatically accurate. Uh, but it takes a few reads to get that right. But, but, but I think we can probably relate to this, that there's a gap between what I do and what I think about. And actually, if you were to judge me based on what I think about, I'm a pretty decent person. I actually, I, I, you know, I'm charitable, I'm generous, I'm kind, I'm patient, I'm long-suffering in my head. But in real life, it doesn't always quite come out that way. And maybe I'm on my own when I say this. Maybe you're going, yes, you are, not us. But most of us, actually, these ancient words from St. Paul go, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much me. You know, we get up in the morning, we have all these intentions about how great the day is going to be, and then our first conversation, and it kind of crashes into a heap, and we're going, oh no, it's all fallen again. Now, in Romans chapter 7, Paul is part of a much bigger conversation about human brokenness, really. But I think the point bears listening to, that there is a gap between what I want to do and what I actually do, and then perhaps... I need to be aware of the fact that if there is a trajectory between my thinking and my doing, it might actually not be that it's my thinking that shapes what I do. It might ultimately be that it's my doing that shapes how I think. And this is why I think the question about liturgies is so important. Because actually what liturgies are about is the things we do regularly. And why do we care so much about the things we do regularly? Why does it matter about the habits that we do so regularly? Well, actually, if Paul is correct, and I'm going to put it to you that he is, if Paul is correct, the trajectory of think well, and this will lead to good behavior, might not be as effective as we think. In fact, maybe it becomes acting well that shapes how I think and behave. And I think part of the reason for that is because of how our brains work. Our brains are incredible things, and and you know this already. Regularly, I know we get up in the morning and we stare at our head, this carrier of our brain, and we say, what an amazing thing is going, no, I'm joking, I know. But our brains are quite incredible, but also profoundly lazy. Our brains are, are trying constantly to do things as easily as they can, no matter how hard we try. In fact, Timothy Wilson, in his book, Strangers to Ourselves, says this, only about 5% of what we do in a given day is the outcome of conscious, deliberate choices that we make. 
slightly depressingly low number. 5%. So 95% of the time, I might be on a form of autopilot. I might be just sort of doing the sort of things that I regularly do. My life, probably the vast majority of what I'm doing is sort of just happening because I do it regularly. Some of this apparently is because uh, I should clarify if it's not eminently clear that I am not an expert on these things uh, right now. But Right in the middle of your brain, you have this piece of neurological tissue called the basal ganglia. It's probably pronounced completely differently to that. But this part of your brain comes alive anytime you do something new. When you do something new, that part of your brain kind of goes into full power mode and sort of says, right, there's something new to learn here, and I have got to learn it. So this kind of high energy sort of part of your brain starts paying attention because you're doing something new, which is why learning something new is tiring. Right? Because you actually are working harder. It's like you ever have one of those days where you're like, man, I'm really tired today, and yet all I did was sit at my desk watching some seminar or learning something. Well, you are tired because your brain's had to work pretty hard to learn this new thing. It's why you know, a new job is difficult. It's why learning to play a musical instrument or a new language is so difficult. It's why, if you can remember, learning to drive was so hard. Because there's just so much going on all at the same time. You've got to move your hands and your, your arms, and you've got to look out all, all the right spaces, and your brain's trying to learn this. But this bit of your brain also does something which I think is profoundly interesting. Whereas whenever it's doing something new, what it's doing is also looking for patterns in what you're doing. Are there patterns or sequences or repeatable aspects of what's going on? And if there are, The brain spots these repeatable aspects and tries how to to learn how to do them as easily as possible, how to do them habitually and repetitively, which allows the power source to kind of go down a little bit and move that 5% over into the 95% that we talked about. Questions I would ask you about this were, like, how much attention did you actually pay this morning to cleaning your teeth? But my guess is most of you navigated it successfully. You're wearing a mask, so if you didn't, everybody's okay. <laughs> but, but there's a sense, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, that if you think, like if there's something new that you have to input into your morning routine, you go to the doctors and they give you a new medication and they say you have to take this 30 minutes before you eat your breakfast. Have you noticed how hard that is to do? It's like, oh no, I'm at breakfast again and I've still not taken my medication. Because, because there's a kind of automated process going on that gets you out of bed and downstairs. Another one perhaps you can relate to, have you ever arrived somewhere in your car and had the very brief moment of, how did I get here? <laughs> like, like, yeah, it's terrifying, right? And it makes sense of a whole host of other drivers out there on the road, right? But, but that sense of, you know that you were alert, and you know that nothing happened, but you're also aware that cognitively, I don't think I thought about the route that I take. I just kind of went on that particular route. I have this issue in my own life, just a bit of confession for a moment. When I drop my daughter off at school, sometimes I have a meeting first thing that's not at church, And when I have to drop my daughter off and go somewhere other than church, it's quite common, embarrassingly so, that I turn up at church anyway and then realize as I park my car, I'm not supposed to be here. But some sort of automated process happened that as I left my daughter's school, my brain goes, I know what to do now. You just stay quiet, half asleep, and I'll take over from here. Um, I really probably should see someone about this. But 
This is because we, we like to work in automated behaviors. We like to make things easy. We like to work in routines. Brain scientists talk about this as chunking, where we actually kind of take whole processes and we sort of do them automatically. And this is the roots of how our habits form. Things that happen not through us thinking, but actually through us not thinking. And this is, of course, your brain being efficient. Otherwise, you would be tired all the time. So what your brain does is it looks for cues, right? In my case, it might be the leaving of my daughter's school. And my brain sees a cue and goes, wait a minute, I know what to do with this. And it puts into play a routine of just regular behavior that gets me the reward. Look, I'm at work and I'm on time. And then I realize I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> and this happens constantly. The, the cue, something triggers a way of thinking, and then either it's physical or emotional or mental, and then it gets you to what it is that you particularly want. This is why, for example, if you like to watch a movie and eat popcorn at the same time, you'll notice that every time you sit down in that particular chair to watch the movie, this desire for popcorn starts to develop from somewhere. Now, how does that happen? It's all connected to this cue and then this routine that happens. The more and more you do the same thing, a habit develops, and your brain stops fully participating in your decision-making processes. So unless you deliberately fight it, it kind of happens automatically. This is all good. Without it, your brains would shut down, you'd be exhausted. Imagine if you had to relearn how to clean your teeth every morning. Imagine if you had to relearn to go down the stairs. If, imagine if you had to learn that on your third step, it's slightly loose, so step further. All the little things that you just learn all the time that allow you to get through your life without being exhausted and overwhelmed by day-to-day -day life. But here's one of the problems with habit development. Your brain also isn't particularly good at telling the difference between a good habit and a bad habit. It just likes cues and routines. So the bag of chips that you open at the start of the movie, that cues this need to eat these chips before the movie starts. I don't know if there's anyone it's in that sort of category with me. I buy all the food, arrive in the cinema, and before the trailers have even finished, I have decimated all of the things that were going to get me through this very long film. Is that just me? I'm feeling very alone right now uh, that nobody else does that. And, uh, but, but this cue starts to happen, and it's like, oh, it's in here. Now, the truth is my brain's not overly interested on whether I should or should not eat all the chips. It's just what I do, <laughs> and it becomes the automated process. So whether your habit is generosity or whether your habit is chewing your nails, they're just habits. Charles Duhigg, in his book on habit, says this, we might not remember the experiences that create our habits, but once they're lodged within our brains, they influence how we act, often without our realization. Habits are powerful, but delicate. So they can emerge outside of our consciousness or can be deliberately designed. They often occur without our permission. They're so strong, in fact, that they cause our brains to cling to them at the exclusion of all else, including common sense. I always find the more you study about how our brains work, the, the kind of your self-esteem starts to drop quite. We're not as impressive as we think. That we'll develop habits that even we know are bad and even we know aren't sensible, but they're really, really hard to break. It's why we don't intend to eat fast food. You straw poll most people, they're like, yes, no, we know fast food is bad for us, and we know that we shouldn't eat it. 
but at the traffic lights when I saw the golden arches, something happened in my brain and I became like a passenger to my own life that I was drawn in. And of course, the, the, the stores know this. Starbucks know that when you see their, their logo, something happens. And you'll notice this from now on. That whenever you go into any chain stores, have you noticed how they're all kind of laid out the same? It's to try and help your habit kick in. If we can make this all feel familiar, it creates the right cue so that you begin the right behavior. And you just find yourself in the line offering your venti, triple shot, soy, whatever. And, and you're like, how did I get here? Because your brain likes the habit. Maybe there's another thing that you do, perhaps you can relate to, where you pick up your phone, and you navigate to social media, you scroll through to see how everybody is living a better life than you are at this particular moment. You put your phone down, you take three steps, you come back, you pick the same phone back up again, go to the same social media app and scroll through the same posts, seeing this happen again and again. And at some point, maybe you think, I'm sure I've done this before just recently, or maybe you don't. Really what I'm trying to remind us of is that we are not gonna think ourselves into change. We need new habits, new behaviors, and new ways of being, which will help us move differently. Habits are powerful, Dubig says, but also delicate. So in one sense, a habit will look for the cue to activate it so that we keep doing the same thing, but if you can actually just tweak the cue, just avoid the cue, take a different route home so you don't see that fast food restaurant, and it's amazingly powerful at changing our behavior. What we do can change how we think. Especially important if our thinking isn't quite where we thought it was. Paul talks about this elsewhere in the New Testament in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 9, writing to a different church from the, the people in Rome. He says to them, this is my prayer. So he's praying for this community. He says, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. At first, very quick glance, this might sound like it's saying the opposite of what I'm trying to say in this sermon. Now, wait a minute, Paul's talking about knowledge and depth of insight and discernment. But look at what he puts in first. What he puts in first is love. He says that may you abound in love. It's not that they're going to have knowledge and insight and discernment, but that knowledge and insight and discernment are going to grow from their abounding love, from their behaviors in loving ways. Because he, what we notice this in Scripture, and we notice this elsewhere as well, is that actually it's your desires, it's what you love, it's what you're driven by that actually changes who you are, that actually changes how you behave and what you do. So Paul's suggesting here that we don't think ourselves differently, but rather the practices, our abounding love, is what's going to shape our habits. What we do is what we practice, and what we practice is what shapes us. For me, one of the best books on this particular question is James Smith's uh, You Are What You Love, brilliant Canadian Christian philosopher. Uh, and Smith says this. He says, love is a habit. And because love is a habit, our hearts are calibrated through the imitating exemplars and being immersed in practices that over time index our hearts to a certain end. So just hold on what Smith's saying here. He's, he's saying, how do we change our behavior? 
It's not through just thinking really hard about having a better behavior, but actually through what we love, through what we desire, through what we want to do, we shape our being. And we do this by copying, like not by how we think, but by copying things that we want to do, and also by immersing ourselves in practices that shape us and form us in that particular way. People I often ask me, I, 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 uh, when I've not managed to fall over and hurt myself, I love running. And people say, did you always love running? And I said, no. When I started running, I hated it. I hated everything about it. And not only did I hate running when I started running, I hated myself while running. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. That it wasn't just simply, this is horrible, but I too am terrible. A lot of self-loathing that I'm just working out here publicly. But <laughs> yeah, but it was like I hated myself for not being good at running. I hated running for being so bad and just horrible. And then something happened over the constant repetition that I learned to love it. And I actually learned to actually enjoy it to the extent now that I want to run. Why? Because I love it. And, and I want to be part of doing these things. And I found myself reflecting often on what Smith says here when I think about that, that it's the practices, it's the things that we put in place that form and shape our thinking. So notice what Smith then says. We learn to love. We learn to love then, not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. Let me stick with my running metaphor for a moment. You can read as many books as you want on running. It won't make you love running anymore. It'll make you think you love running. It'll make you know a lot about people that do love running, but it won't change you. It won't shape you in the same way as practicing something will. So our loves are formed by immersion by rooting ourselves into rituals. See, the question I think is really interesting here. The question is not, will we love the things that we do? The question is, you will do the things that you love to do. Therefore, what we must ask is, what is it that I love doing? What is it that my heart is yearning for? And then sometimes a more complex question, what is it that my heart is yearning for? And what substitutes am I trying to put in its place to deal with my yearnings? And why does any of this matter? Why are we talking about this right now? And my answer to that question as to why does any of this matter is not overly profound. It is simply this, because it's 2022. <laughs> because 2022. We have lived through significant disrupt disruption over the past two years. Like disruption at a level that none of us knew was coming, None of us were prepared for, I think would be fair to say, and the disruption continues. And it's not that we live in one destruction that we're living with the ongoing effects on, but the disruption seems to change. Have you noticed this? That over the past two years, just as we feel like I've figured out how to navigate this particular problem, a new problem emerges. And it kind of feels a little hopeless at times, I get that. And I want to ask yourselves a question, or rather invite you to ask yourself a question about this. With all the disruption that we've lived through, and we've been immensely privileged to survive it, where we know others that perhaps haven't. So I don't want to be kind of deaf to the pain and the torment of that. But thinking about where we're at right now, let me ask you this over the last two years. Has your thinking changed much? And the answer to that might be possibly 
Because weird things happened in our thinking over the past two years. In one sense, some of our thinking has slightly changed. But in another way, our thinking has become more solidified. As a a society, we're we're more divided than we've ever been. It's like we've doubled down on what we think. We're like, no, this is, I'm really holding my ground. This is what I believe now against the other things that I could believe. So let me ask you a different question. Instead of has your thinking changed over this pandemic, let me ask you this. Has your behavior changed over the pandemic? And the answer to that question is almost definitely. So if what we're saying this morning is true, that it's not our thinking that shapes us, but our behavior that shapes us, then we have to be cognizant of the fact that the pandemic has formed us. If our behavior has changed, then we have changed. Our way of doing things has changed. Therefore, in the process of the last two years, our habits have changed. We have new habits now. And here's the thing. Some of them will be good and some of them will be bad. There may be things that you've enacted into your life that you're like, actually, I I should have done this a long time ago. I was speaking to somebody just this this week and they said, man, we're, we're cooking at home more. We're not doing restaurants so much now. We're cooking at home and we've loved the experiments of that. It's a new habit. It's a good habit. But then there's other habits that we've developed that pastoral confidentiality prevents me from sharing publicly. So (laughs) is it worth us doing an audit of our daily rhythms is it worth us taking a time and just saying where am i up to at the start of a new year two years into this pandemic are all my habits the habits that i want do i have do i have coherence in my habits Harrison Warren continues in the book, Liturgy of the Ordinary. She says, the crucible of our formation is in the monotony of our daily routines. We are formed by the stuff we do every day. We're formed by the stuff that we do regularly. Not by the hour on Sunday where the pastor throws out a new idea or we sing a new song, but actually in what we do daily is what shapes us into the people that we are. Let me sound really like a pastor for a moment. If you were to audit your spiritual formation over the pandemic, would you be happy with how things are for you? Like what's going on with our discipleship at the moment? What is their journey of following Jesus looking like? What's our church attendance like? What's our community with other Christians like? What routines and disciplines have we started that we think, you know what, I need to hold on to this routine because this has been good for me during this pandemic. But what routines have we perhaps stopped and even perhaps forgotten about that were formative and shaping to us? Notice how the author to the Hebrews digs into how we can actually encourage each other to be formed well and then calls us to be alert to the possibility of developing habits that are counter to our intentions. So in chapter 10 of Hebrews, the author says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Like I get, like I sound so much like a pastor right now, it's awkward, right? I'm not lobbying hard for let's make sure we're all in a church meeting together. Hear me well on that. We're all navigating very complex things at the minute to do with our comfort in public, our, 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 our comfort in large rooms, and all of that's okay. Circumstances over the last two years have meant that meeting together has been somewhere between impossible or very difficult, right? And whether that's just you and your friends or a church service or a Bible study or whatever it is that you do, 
And we've, we've made it difficult as a church leadership, I know that, by limiting the amount of services we've got on because we want to keep prioritizing the vulnerable and care for our neighbor in this process. And then in the midst of that, the church has been through lots of change and there's lots of disruption and it might not always feel the most stable place to be. But I want to pick up on what the righteous of the Hebrew says here. Spur one another on. See, because for me, what I'm asking us to do is just take stock of our own habits. That in the process of some habits, changing habits are delicate, remember. So we can't meet together regularly in church. Let's just use this as an example for a moment. That's got all good reasons as to why that's the case. So, so we're not discussing the ethics of that, but we're just saying we can't do it. So when that habit goes, my question for you to audit is what else has gone with it? You know, has there other disciplines that actually, it turns out I used, to, I used to listen to the teaching and then I would go home and study that a little bit and that would guide some of my prayer life. And when I broke that piece of the habit, these pieces have gone with it. Do you, see, do you hear what I'm sort of just trying to scratch around with a little bit? It's what's going on in our spiritual formation and discipleship because the risk I think we all constantly live in is that habits change because our behavior adjusts and changes. So at the risk of sounding like one of those old pastors that's just asking everybody to come to church on time, and that's not what I'm doing, please hear me. But is it worth an audit of your own spiritual formation at the start of 2022? An audit of what's going on in your own situation, your own life, and are you happy with it? Have my routines changed? And have they changed for better or for worse? And am I okay with that? That's the question that only you can answer. Am I okay with that? Do, do my current habits align with my theological thoughts. Here's what I think I'm about. Does my current life suggest that that's what I'm about? Think about this. Over the course of the pandemic, we've been encouraged constantly to think about caring for one another. And one of the ways we've done that is by isolating ourselves from one another, by keeping ourselves distinctly away from each other, which again is what was needed to be done. But how has that affected our charity? How has that affected our generosity? How has that affected our care for each other? These are questions I think we should ask as individuals and as families. I love this idea of spurring one another on. Who needs a phone call? Who needs a Zoom message? Who needs connecting with in your friendship groups? People that you used to encounter that you might think, oh, let me just encourage this person because maybe things are tough for them. A couple of comments then just about us as a community uh, really quickly uh, as, as we land today. Because here's, I, I want to just speak to something about habits that I've noted in my life. That church is a bit of a habit, right? It's something we do. We do every week. It's like, oh, it's time for church again. And there's, there's various habits involved in that. And that's okay because we are creatures of habit. You've heard people say that before. We're creatures of habit. We're creatures of liturgy. We're creatures of ritual. We kind of do the same things. Most of us, if you look at our day-to-day life in detail, there's a lot of repetition goes on, right? There's a lot of the the same thing. I saw something just recently uh, on the internet, and it was a man, and he was on his knees with a ring, and and there was a woman stood there, and he said to her, will you commit to spend the rest of your life planning meals with me? And... (laughs) And anybody who's ever sat, you know, with their partner and like, we're going to eat this week will know just like how repetition, I can't even say that word, how much repetition is in our day-to-day lives. But what I think is really fascinating as a churchgoer 
is particularly somebody who grew up within Pentecostal and evangelical tradition, is that we will accept tradition and, and, and liturgy and repetition everywhere except in a church service. It's like we do a church service at the same time every single week, but then when it comes to the church service, we want it to be completely different every single time. And then we get done the, ch the church service, and then we go home and eat at the same restaurant every single Sunday. And it's kind of strange to me that if what I'm saying about habits is true and that habits and rituals form us, then the one place that we should want something actually consistent is actually church. Because we're saying, no, well, this is where we come together as Jesus' people and be formed. And if we're best formed by repetition, maybe a bit of repetition is good for us. And actually, church is full of repetition. Church services are full of repetition. We're formed by songs. Why do we sing songs every week? Well, if they're good songs, they'll point us towards Jesus. And they'll say, hey, you should love Jesus. If they're good sermons, they should do the same thing. The call of a good gathering of Christians should be to think outside of ourselves, to think about helping others. We're in dialogue with each other, whether it's around a communion table or in coffee or on the way to the car or wherever we choose and are able to safely chat to each other right now. Another thing that we do is we recite scripture and creeds, which I know is something we've started kind of doing a little differently at Westside in really since we reopened in-person services. And, and that's intentional. I'm just kind of, I, I want to just be really clear about this this morning. That part of the reason why, why are we doing more Psalms that we read together? Why are we saying creeds together? Is actually because of habit formation. Because we want to do things together when we're here that form and shape us. Because church, I think, is a habit of habits. And so when we say things together, when we speak these things together, when we recite things together, when we memorize them actually, because the more and more we say them, they start to sound familiar. My hope is, and brain science seems to tell us that this is, what, this is what happens, the Bible seems to suggest that the Holy Spirit does this with us as well, is that the more we put these things into our lives, when we need them, they come out. They, 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 they sort of leak out of us when we need them to leak out of us. And so for me, the church gathering should be a space of formation. Songs, sermons, creeds, scripture that calls us to be formed into being Jesus' people. I also am really, really enjoying the fact that when we lean into repeating and, and, and responding to psalms, standing together to say creeds, it creates more space in our gathering for our voices to be used. The church calls us into dialogue. It calls us into not simply turning up to listen, but to participate. Because when we participate then, we're saying together, we're repeating together, we're being formed together. And I think if we bear with that, even if it feels a little unusual, even if it's not what we've done in the past, I think we learn to love that and learn to be shaped by it and learn to be pointed towards Jesus together. And I think that builds faith and draws us into the beautiful sense of community together. So church then becomes a place, another place of habit formation. Church becomes another place where we come and are shaped and formed by what we do. And hopefully, if we're all doing that together in community, what we're being shaped and formed into is the people that Jesus called us to be. In Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 14, the writer talks about how maturity and gaining maturity 
requires that we train ourselves, requires that we actually journey on, on, a, on a way of, of training. And the result of, of maturity and training is that we can distinguish good from evil. And I kind of think about that when I was thinking about habits, that actually we commit to something, we train ourselves in doing something, and the net result is we can distinguish between the good habits and the bad habits of our lives. Is this what it is to follow Jesus sometimes? Is about committing to be shaped and formed in a way that is good. So my prayer for us today, as we begin this series and perhaps launch our way into 2022, is that we can use our habits to be formed well, to be formed into a place of goodness. So let me say this is a blessing for you uh, today. That may you feel the light of Jesus shining and illuminating in your life as we start this new year. May you distinguish between the good and the bad habits of your life, some that are new habits that need assessing and think about. May you ask the right questions. May you audit the right things. And may you shine with the radiance of Jesus as you do what you think and think what you do. My prayer is this, may you have habit coherence. And may you find the church, this church, is a community that is repeatedly, again and again, a safe space to be formed into the habits of Jesus and his kingdom. Habits that draw us into him so that his light may shine through us. Amen and amen. May his grace and peace be with you this week.